Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today we begin an exciting study of the book of Acts, with chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In this portion of Scripture, we see the essential strategy by which Jesus proposes to change the world. The title of the message is, The Strategy. The book of Acts is the action book of the New Testament, and it constitutes, therefore, one of the most exciting books in all of the Bible. Exciting because we see the presence of our resurrected Lord striding across every page, every paragraph. But the book of Acts is not only exciting, it is also essential. Essential because it provides pictures and patterns and principles for us, his body, to move in practicality and purity and power. Now the book of Acts will take us from the very first feast of Pentecost after the resurrection to the time of the imprisonment of one of the most important personalities in the early church, the Apostle Paul. It begins in Jerusalem, it closes in Rome. It begins with Jesus and a handful of men. It closes with churches all over the world with the gospel penetrating the very heart of the Roman Empire itself, Rome. Now the first several verses of chapter one constitute its introduction to the book of Acts, giving us the key to the book. It reveals to us the essential strategy by which Jesus Christ proposes to change the world, a strategy which is the secret of the revolutionary character of the church when it is operating as it was intended to operate. Unfortunately, even Christians today have bought into the idea of so many of the world that the church is not relevant, that it's not an important segment of society. That view is absolutely false. The church is the most important body in all of the world today, far and away beyond any other body, because whatever happens in the world happens as a result of something that is or is not happening in the church, as we will, as we will see as we study the book of Acts. Now this strategy is given to us beginning in verses one and two. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now the author of the book of Acts is Luke. He says, the former account I made, O Theophilus. He's referring to his gospel, which bears his name. Now we do not really know all that much about Luke, from the New Testament. We know that he was a physician, we know that he was a Gentile, and we know that he was a companion of the Apostle Paul. He is writing now to the same man to whom he had written his gospel, a man by the name of Theophilus. Now we know this because Luke opens his gospel this way. Let's turn to Luke chapter one now, and verse one. It begins this way. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, 
having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Now, who is Theophilus? Well, we're not told, but notice that it says that he is called most excellent Theophilus. The word most excellent is a title of rank and honor. It is the same title used of Felix and Festus, two high-ranking Roman officials who we will meet in Acts chapter 23, 24, and 26. So Theophilus must have been a Roman official of high rank. Now, many Bible scholars and historians believe that Theophilus was actually Luke's master, because in those days, the position of a physician was usually held by the slaves of wealthy men. And so that Luke's master was Theophilus, and he released Luke to be with Paul on the missionary journeys. And so Luke now is writing back to his former master. Now, that's an early church tradition. We can't say for sure that that's the case. Nevertheless, Theophilus was a personal friend of Luke, close enough to correspond with Luke about the Lord Jesus. He was either a man interested in knowing the truth about Christ or else a new convert who needed to be grounded in the word and be grounded in Christ. Perhaps Luke himself had led Theophilus to Christ. Many historians believe that that's the case. Now, Theophilus is really a, a strange-sounding name to us. I mean, how would you like to have the name Theophilus? Someone said that he was named Theophilus because when the doctor first saw him, he said, that's the awfulest-looking baby that I've ever seen. But you know, really, the name is a beautiful name. It means beloved of God or the friend of God. Theos, God, phileo, love, friendly love. And so it's a beautiful name, beloved of God or friend of God. And there is no doubt that Theophilus was a man who sought to grow and to mature in the Lord. I mean, just imagine, Luke and Acts were written to him, two of the greatest books ever written. Why? Because he obviously had a deep hunger to know the Lord, to learn all that he could about the Lord. What a legacy and a testimony to be known as the man who so hungered to know the Lord that he had two of the greatest books ever written addressed to him. May we all develop a hunger like that to learn more and more about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are all indebted to Theophilus for sharing his letters with us because otherwise we would not have the Gospel of Luke, nor would we have the book of Acts. Well, back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 again. The former account I made, that is the gospel according to Luke, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The key word is began. The gospel according to Luke is not the full story of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It is only the beginning. Jesus continues to minister to the needs of his people. Jesus continues to heal the sick. Jesus continues to minister his love and his gospel to the world. Only now he is ministering through his disciples. The Lord today continues to work through the lives of those who have dedicated themselves to be the instruments of God, to be led and guided and anointed by his Holy Spirit to continue the ministry of Jesus in the world today. And so Luke says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And that is always the divine order, doing first and then teaching. Listen, if you want to impact your children, if you want to have power in ministry, follow this simple principle, 
do it before you teach it. Our Lord moved with incredible authority, and those who heard him, Matthew 7.29 says, were astonished at his doctrine, because he didn't just teach the word theoretically, but he lived it out before them. So, in his first statement here, Luke gives us the great strategy by which the Lord works among mankind. He says, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The Gospel of Luke is the record of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In John's word, he was the word made flesh who came to dwell among us, John 1 and verse 14. Jesus the man came to begin something, to do and to teach, and the record of that beginning is in the Gospels. But by clear implication, this second book is the continuation of what Jesus began to do. So in a very real sense, Acts is not the Acts of Christians, but is the continuing Acts of Jesus. It is an account of what Jesus continues to do and to teach. In the Gospels, he did it in his physical body of flesh. In the book of Acts, he is doing it through the bodies of men and women who are indwelt with his life. So, whether in the Gospels or in Acts, incarnation is the secret strategy by which God changes the world. I like the way Ray Stedman puts it. Listen, and I quote, Whenever God wants to get a message across to men, he does not simply send someone to announce it. His final way of driving it home is to dress the message in flesh and blood. He takes a life and aims it in a certain direction, and by the manifestation of his own life through the blood and flesh of a human being, he makes clear what he has to say. That is the strategy of the book of Acts. It is the record of incarnation. Men and women possessed by Jesus Christ, owned by him, and thus manifesting his life. That is the secret of authentic Christianity. Anytime you find a Christianity that is not doing that, it is a false Christianity. No matter how much it may adapt the garb and language of Christianity, if it is not the activity of human beings possessed and indwelt by the life of Jesus Christ, it is not authentic Christianity." End quote. That is the true power of the church, as we will see in this book. The book of Acts, then, is an unfinished book. It has never been ended, but it is still being written. The book abruptly closes with an account of Paul in the city of Rome in his own hired house. It just ends there as though you might turn over the next page and begin the next volume. This book is volume one. We are now writing volume 20. So Luke says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now notice that Jesus worked and taught through the Holy Spirit. While he was on earth here in the flesh, Christ was totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He had to surrender himself and to make himself available to the Spirit. And just think, if Christ was so dependent upon the Spirit of God, how much more are we? How much more do we need to make ourselves available to him, available to his leading and to his guiding, available for his gifts 
and for his power in our lives. And it says that Jesus gave and taught his commandments to those whom he had chosen, that is, his apostles. He taught throngs of people, but he zeroed in on his apostles. His whole mission depended upon them. They were to be the first who would carry his message to the world after his departure. If they failed, his mission would fail. If they succeeded, his mission would succeed. And so he concentrated on them to drill his commandments into them so that they in turn could teach his commandments. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering. The word suffering refers to his suffering of death on the cross. By many infallible proofs, being seen by them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke now stresses for us the great and central fact of Christian faith. Jesus is alive. That incomparable fact is what thrusts Christianity 10 million miles ahead of its nearest competitor. I mean, there is nothing else like it. Jesus alive, risen from the dead. And verse 3 says that he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. And the word proof there means positive proof, infallible proof, convincing proof, sure signs and ways. And these infallible positive proofs and appearances went on for 40 days. Now it is interesting to see how many events in Scripture are tied to 40 days. The flood was 40 days upon the earth, Genesis 7 and verse 4. Two different times, 40 days, was the length of time that Moses went unto Mount Sinai to receive the law, Exodus 24, Exodus 34. 40 is the number of days that the spies were searching out the land of Canaan, Numbers 13, verse 25. 40 is the number of days that Goliath presented himself to the armies of Israel, 1 Samuel 17 and verse 16. Forty days is the term of time that was given out by Jonah for the destruction of the city of Nineveh, Jonah 3 and verse 4. And forty days is the amount of days that Jesus Christ fasted and was tempted in the wilderness, Matthew 4 and verse 2. Now, I know that there are different ideas as to what this number 40 represents. But whatever else the number 40 might represent, it also seems to be a number of days that speak of a full amount of time. That is enough to accomplish whatever job is being done. And the idea is that Jesus gave a complete, full testimony to the disciples of his resurrection, enough to make sure that they were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And this, by the way, is the only place that mentions the period of time from his resurrection to his ascension, 40 days. Now notice that it says in verse 3 that he was seen by them during these 40 days. The word for seen is the word ophthalmia, and it's the word for eye, or literally it is the word for the eyeball. And if we were to put it in modern vernacular, what Luke is saying is, is that these disciples eyeballed him for 40 full days. That Jesus appeared to his disciples off and on for 40 days, causing them to understand that even though they would no longer see him visibly, he would be in their midst in reality. Now in John 20, Verse 25, Thomas said, I'm not going to believe this resurrection stuff unless I can put my hand into the wound in his side and into the nail prints in his hands. 
Then, one week following, Jesus shows up, and he says to him, Put your hand in my side. Touch my wounds. And Thomas's eyes were open, and he realized that even though he hadn't seen Jesus, Jesus had been there, and Jesus had seen him. And my prayer is, is that like Thomas, we would grasp the fact that even though we may not see him or feel him or sense him, Jesus is always here. He's always with us. Now, this marvelous fact of the resurrection of Jesus is the bedrock upon which all Christian faith ultimately rests. Any time that you are troubled with doubts or under attack for your faith, come right back to this fundamental fact. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 holds it up for us and he says in effect to the enemies of Christianity, he says, look, if you want to destroy our faith, then disprove this fact. It all rests on this. If Christ be not risen, then our faith is vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Throughout the centuries, many attempts have been made to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, but none have ever been successful. It is fact number one upon which the strategy of incarnation rests. And we will find a major emphasis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this book. We will find it to be the centerpiece of every sermon that is preached in this book. When Peter gets up to preach in the temple, the focal point of his message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is what Paul emphasizes when he goes to Athens. And so it is. In every sermon that is preached in the book of Acts, the resurrection is one of the focal points from the very beginning all the way to the end. The thing that sets us apart from what others believe is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, as you know, today in this world, it's just a smorgasbord. I mean, you just pick your own religion today. You know, I'll have a little Christianity and throw in a few New Age spices and give me a side of Hinduism and Buddhism and throw it all together. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe in. And it is so often when you share the gospel that people say, I mean, what's the difference? I mean, everybody believes in God. You all believe in God. So you call it through the way of Jesus. Some people say it's through the way of Muhammad or whatever, but it's all the same thing. No, it is not. The resurrection separates Christianity from every other belief system. You know, if you go to visit the tomb in Jerusalem of Jesus Christ today, they have there the scriptures from the gospels over the tomb, and it says, he is not here. He is risen. It is an empty tomb. There's no remains. There's no bones. There's no casket of someone who has been preserved under a shroud of some kind. It is a vacated tomb. The resurrection sets apart every other religion from Christianity. There is a book by Frank Morrison entitled, Who Moved the Stone? He was an unbelieving attorney with a hard heart who set out to disprove the claims of Jesus, specifically the resurrection. So he gathered all the evidence as a lawyer, researching it to come up with his case, why Jesus did not rise from the dead. But as he brought in eyewitness accounts and textual accounts, he wrote a book, and in the first chapter of the book, he writes about how after looking at all of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he gave his heart and his life to the Lord. You see, he saw the evidence as overwhelming. 
It has been said that there is more evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar ever lived or that Alexander the Great died when he was 33 years of age. So Luke says in verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the favorite subject of Jesus Christ. He was always talking about the kingdom. And there is going to be a kingdom that is coming. Things are not always going to continue corrupted as they are. The world is not going to go on forever under the power of darkness, under the bondage of evil. God is going to one day establish his kingdom upon the earth, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. And that day will be the most glorious day that the world has ever seen, as sickness and suffering and pain will be abolished in his kingdom, as sin and greed and these things that have made the world such an intolerable place will be abolished in his kingdom. The godless commercialism, the exploitation of man, all of these things abolished in the glorious kingdom when he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. Now this promise that he is referring to is no doubt the promise of Joel 2, verse 28, where the Lord promised, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It is the promise of the Father, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And so he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So Jesus said, stick around. Don't go outside the city until the promise of the Father has come upon you. Why? Because you will make a mess of it if you try it without this. This is essential. You cannot be an effective Christian if you are not operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Every attempt made to advance the cause of Christianity, which does not arise from that source, only destroys the message that God wants to convey. It is absolutely essential, Jesus tells these men. So don't try to do anything without it. Just wait, because in a few days you will receive the promise of the Father. For John, he said, verse 5, truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now the idea of baptism was that of immersion. The word is baptizo in the Greek, and it means total immersion. So he's saying John baptized with water, submerged people in water. You're going to be submerged in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
These disciples were still thinking in terms of an earthly, physical Messiah, of a physical and material rule and reign for themselves and for their nation, Israel. But Jesus is talking to them now, not about the kingdom, but about the power that they are going to receive for service. You see, it's not a program, but it is power. They were thinking in terms of timetables and schedules and programs. What are you going to do? When is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? And the Lord Jesus says, verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. It is not for you to know. They lived constantly in the anticipation of the immediate setting up of the kingdom. I mean, during the entire lifetime of Jesus, they were expecting him at any moment to go into a phone booth like Superman and come out as the savior of the world, showing his power and overthrowing the governments of the world, establishing God's kingdom upon the earth. And they were waiting daily for this change to take place. And Jesus says, no, no, it is not for you to know these things. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, next time, we're going to cover verse 8 in depth. I mean, there's so much in this one verse that God has for each of you. It's too much to cover in one teaching along with the first seven verses. But Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus says times, schedules, programming is not for you to know. That is all in the Father's authority. Your task is to be the manifestation of power, not the knowledge of a program. The Father will take care of that. Jesus says you just be content with exercising the power that is given to you, and the Father will put it all together and work it all out just right. You see, this has been the mistake of the church. Here is the mistake of the church. The church has thought that it has had the task of programming somehow the work of God, that it was up to us to set up timetables and to establish structures and framework by which the work would go on, to carry it all out consistently and systematically across and around the world. But we have never, ever been able to do it. And the reason is, is because this is not our authority. The times and the seasons are not for us to know. The Father has kept that in his own authority. But, said Jesus, though I'm not going to let you know the program, I will give you the power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. God's very own Spirit was to come upon them. No greater power could ever be possessed by anyone. And once the early disciples experienced the coming of God's Spirit upon their lives, interestingly, they never asked those kinds of questions again. They never asked anything about earthly power. Experiencing the presence and the power of God upon their lives was the apex. It was the summit, the supreme experience of their lives. Nothing else was ever needed. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.